welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. It's the final commandment that switches sin from external behavior to internal desires. Dr. Brian Chappell, stated clerk of the Presbyterian Church in America, finishes the series The Ten Commandments with this sermon entitled You Shall Not Covet, which covers Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Dr. Brian Chapel, we are so honored, by the way, to have him not only preach, but even worship here with us and be willing to fill the pulpit from time to time for us. Uh, Dr. Chapel is the stated clerk of the Presbyterian Church in America, which is our denomination, which means he gives oversight and leadership to our entire denomination. And, um, and I think it's important to note, not to his glory by any means, uh, but he is a highly sought after teacher of God's word throughout America and the world. And his podcast is uh, listened to by millions throughout America and the world. And I simply say that to say this, uh, it just so happens that the headquarters of the, of the PCA, our denomination is in Lawrenceville. And, uh, and so the fact that he and his wife, Kathy worship here and that he's willing to preach from time to time is just a tremendous blessing to us. And having said in the nine o'clock, it, it yet again, uh, will be, I without doubt know that it'll be a great blessing to us. I, I do want to mention one thing. Uh, that, uh, that he's a little embarrassed by, but I want to make sure is mentioned because he told me, he said, I've never, never promoted a book that I've written uh, before I preach. And I said, great, let me do that for you. Um, there's a book that he's written that I think is incredibly, incredibly timely. Many of you have asked me, uh, with all that's going on in Israel, how, do we, what do we, how are we to think about this? What does this mean for end times and those kind of things? And... Um, and so uh, Dr. Chapel has written a book. The name of the book is called Are We Living in the Last Days? There you go, very appropriately. Uh, you can pre-order it. It comes out in February. And I think it can be a great resource to you as you uh, walk with the Lord in these times. If you want to use that QR code to go ahead and pre-order it, there's some postcards at the Start Here counters on the way out that you can do the same with. Uh, but go ahead and, and uh, order that book and be blessed by it. And we'll probably, most likely, he doesn't know this yet, but we'll have him come in after that book is released in February and we'll do some type of Q&A with it and some type of presentation. If his schedule allows, I would love, love to do that and uh, have discussion around it. So um, let me see if I hit everything I want to say here. I believe I did. Uh, now, let's prepare our hearts for the reading of God's word. Alice Yoon on our worship staff, she's going to come and she's going to read. We are finishing up uh, the Ten Commandments. This series has been a tremendous, tremendous blessing for so many of us. Many of you have commented such. Good morning, Perimeter Church family. Uh, today's scripture reading comes from Exodus twenty seventeen. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Alice. Let's read our prayer of illumination together. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us that we may in such a way hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Thou shalt not covet. I was kind of okay with the not coveting male servants, female servants, oxen, and donkeys. But then it said, or anything that is your neighbor's, and now I know I'm caught. I shall not covet anything that is my neighbor's. And that's for you too. If your neighbor has it and you don't, don't want it. Don't want what you don't have. Uh, that may make Christmas a little dull, but um, it's what God said. No, you know that can't be entirely what that means. What, what does it mean not to covet? It, it can't mean that it's wrong for a starving child to want a good meal. It, it can't mean that it's wrong for a poor person to want a good income, or a hard worker to want a promotion, or a loving mom to want everybody home for Thanksgiving. I mean, just, just wanting is not sinning. So what turn our wants into coveting? It's helpful to remember maybe what Pastor Jeff has reminded us over and over again as we've gone through these 10 commandments, that at their root, virtually every command is disregarding God. It's putting something above His glory, His purpose, His worship. And when you covet something, in essence what you're doing is what Paul Tripp calls horizontal idolatry. You look across the world and you say, I can't be happy unless I have that possession or that position or that person. And in doing so, what we're really doing is we are giving something in creation power over our hearts. I can't be happy unless I have it. And as a consequence, what we are doing is we are actually turning our want into an idol. I can't be happy without it. That's what's going to grant me what my heart needs. And if you will, that's really the, the problem with coveting. Wants aren't wrong until they become worship. And when we begin to worship something, it has a certain form in us. How do you actually mark coveting when it's taken root in your heart? It shows itself. It's got symptoms. Lusting, comparing, but most commonly, complaining. I don't yet have what is sufficient to make me happy. If what gnaws at our hearts and creates empty holes in our hearts are the wants, then you know pretty much what the answer has to be. I mean, what's the answer to coveting, the antidote? The weak should make it plain. What's the answer to coveting? Thanksgiving. That we are thankful for what God provides and filling our hearts with thanksgiving in the place of that coveting. That's the answer, but how do you honestly get there? How do you honestly get to the point of not making your wants necessary for your satisfaction? The Apostle Paul begins to answer that for us in another passage of Scripture I asked to put on the screen for us, which is Colossians 3. It's the very place that the Apostle Paul says that covetousness is idolatry. 
And the reason that Paul begins to give us an antidote to covetousness is all you really do, if all you really do to try to get rid of covetousness is you try to cover it with a make-believe cover of contentment, then you're gonna find that coveting is kind of like trying to put an octopus to bed, right? It, it keeps reaching up and grabbing you with something else or choking out your contentment. The Apostle Paul in Colossians 3 tells us how we'll deal with it. He says this, if or since then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. How do you put to death covetousness, which is idolatry? The apostle begins to give us in this short passage various ways of filling our hearts with thanksgiving for the provision God has already made and the provision he will make for those that he loves. The present provision is in the opening verse. The apostle says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, not the things that are on earth. What's gonna keep you from just seeking the things that are on earth? Well, recognize that you have been raised with Christ. Easy to say, but immediately a mystery. Raised with Christ, that, that's resurrection language. How is it possible that the apostle is talking to living Christians in Colossae and saying, you've been raised with Christ because in order to be raised, you have to have died, but they're alive receiving his letter. In what sense have the Colossians and we already been raised with Christ? The answer in the letter that Paul is writing is in the previous chapter. He describes Christians, that's us, as those having been buried with Christ in baptism, in which you were also, he says, raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. We don't often think about baptism being a death certificate. But the apostle Paul is saying when you were baptized, you were buried with Christ, that something in you died, was put to death. And that may be hard language for us in this culture, but it would not have been far from the understanding of any Jew in Paul's time. If somebody says, I'm not going to follow my Jewish heritage, I am now going to follow Jesus Christ, his new way of life, I'm going to be baptized to mark my faith in him then every Jew would have recognized what you were saying. The way of the fathers, the Jewish traditions, you are saying are dead to you. you. You're calling that death and you are starting on a new way of life. And the apostle Paul is saying that's exactly right. That your baptism is a mark of your death to what was old, 
but you're living a new life in Christ. As he was raised from the dead, you now have new life in him. And it's more than a death certificate, it's a marriage license. You are raised with him. You are united to him. And as a consequence, where he is, you are. And that's the very next thing the apostle is going to say. He says, verse one, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. What does it mean to be dead by your association with Christ? We still know, we still understand. Some of you may have friends or acquaintances who are from another religion, and when they came to faith in Jesus Christ and said, I believe Jesus is the way of life, his provision for my sin, his provision for my future. I'm trusting in Jesus. That sometimes the very family, maybe even the very parents of that one who professed faith in Jesus Christ said what to him? Now you are dead to us. It's a terrible thing to accept. And so the apostle having said to people, you're now raised with Christ, which means you were buried with him, dead with him. You have another great privilege. He is seated at the right hand of God, and you are with him. We talk about this at Easter time, that when Christ was raised, he ascended to God and is seated at his right hand. But we don't always make as much of the point that you are seated with him. Listen, if, if Christ was raised from the dead to make a sacrifice for your sin, that means he is functioning as your priest to make you right with God. And the fact that he is seated would mean everything to a Jew. When the writer of Hebrews begins to explain to us the significance of Jesus being seated at the right hand of God, the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 10, looking at the Old Testament of the Jewish practice. Every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The ancient Jewish temple, even in the Old Testament writings, is described in intricate detail. We know so many pieces of furniture, how they're designed, what they're made of. We know about the seven-branch candlestick, the table for the showbread. We recognize the various offerings that were made and how they were made. We even know what the drapes were made of. But there is one article of furniture that is never described in the Old Testament temple. Do you remember what it was? No chair. Why? Because every day, every priest stands performing his religion. You can't sit down. There's no time for that. I mean, just think what would happen just once a year, the day of Passover. At the day of Passover, sacrifice would be made for the sins of the people, recognizing how the angel of death had passed over by the shedding of blood. And at the time of Jesus, as many as two and a half million people would come to Jerusalem at the time of Passover. Some of you may have been there. And they would go by the hundreds of thousands up the southern steps to the temple. The steps wider than twice the sanctuary. Hundreds of thousands of people going up. And of those two and a half million people, each family offering a sacrifice. 
Have some of you been in a culture where sacrifices are still made? Senegal, Dakar, places where millions of animals may be sacrificed on a single night and the blood runs in the streets and the offal fills the ditches. It's a bloody, awful mess. But every year at the time of Passover, for a thousand years plus more, the high priest would stand and offer sacrifice for millions of people and that is just one day out of the year. That was not the only sacrifice. That's the Passover, that's the annual sacrifice. Do you recognize there were seasonal sacrifices too? Firstlings and firstfruits, planting and harvest. There had to be sacrifices every season of every year for a thousand years plus more. And not just every season, every new moon, every month of every season, of every year for a thousand years plus more. And not just every month, every Sabbath, every week of every month, of every season, of every year for a thousand years plus more. And not just every week, but every day. And not just every day, but every morning and every evening of every day, of every week, of every month, of every season of every year for a thousand years plus more. And not just every day, but for every sin that you knew about. And every sin that you did not know about had to have a separate sacrifice. Every morning, every evening, of every day, of every week, of every month, of every season, of every year, for a thousand years, the blood flowed until one lamb went to a hill called Calvary and he offered himself. And when he did, the offering was done. And the great high priest sat down. The sacrificing was over, the wrestling done. He made it right for you and me. And the veil that separated us from the Holy of Holies with God was split from top to bottom. And we now step into the glory of God by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Do you have any cause for thanksgiving? <laughs> but it's more than thanksgiving. It's tremendous comfort and blessing as we begin to recognize what our hearts tend to say when we recognize something like coveting or any of the Ten Commandments still assaults us, still comes at us, still reaches for our hearts, makes us unhappy with ourselves and with others and with what God provides, we say, oh God, what do I have to do to make this right? How many tears, how much guilt, how many mountains do I have to cross? How many rivers do I have to swim? What will make me right with you? What do I have to do? And God says, would you take a seat? At my right hand with Jesus, you have been made right with me by a work not your own. And this cause of thanksgiving is allowing us to understand God is now for us. And the measurement of that is not only that we've been raised with Christ and we're seated with him at God's right hand, but we're told as well, as you set your mind, verse two, on these things that are above, not on things of earth, for you have died your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Sounds awful. Now that you're dead, recognize that you're hidden with Christ in God. 
But the reality is what's dead is your past, your sin, your shame. That's been sacrificed for. Now you're living with Christ in a resurrection relationship. And what that means is you are hid with Christ and God. The wrath of God that would justly come upon you for your sin went upon Christ. And because he accepted it, you are hidden from any consequence of your sin as you trust in faith for what Christ has done for you. Kathy's and my family comes in two stages. Uh, we have the, the big kids, and then we have the Mac baby. You know what a Mac baby is? Uh, Middle-aged crazy. Um, <laughs> and when the big kids got out of the house, we still have our beautiful, wonderful youngest, Katie. And, you know, always trying to connect with her relationship and so forth. Katie and I had a, a pattern that we sometimes followed, a game after dinner. And the game was called Napkin War. And, uh, you know, when dinner was over and uh, one of the others had been distracted, uh, we'd take a napkin, we'd wad it up, hope the other wasn't looking, and then, boom, the war was on. Whoever started it is going to get that napkin coming right back. And the war is on. And I must tell you something, I always won because I'm a better shot than she is. But Katie discovered a way to stay safe. You know what she did? She would get up out of her chair and she would go and she would hide behind her mother because I won't throw at her mother. You are hid in Christ. And all that could come upon you by the wrath of God is now sheltered from you by Christ who is God's favored child, who you're with now, you're with him. What that means may be hard for us actually to accept at Thanksgiving, the full implication. If, if no wrath of God can come upon you now, that there is no sin, there is no consequence that is eternal between you and God now, nothing between you and his affection, it means that there is a hedge around your life through what, which nothing can enter except by determination of the love of God. And that hedge is Christ. What that means is, if you knew everything that God knows about what is best for your heart, and the eternity of those that you love, then you would make the same choices for your life that God has chosen for you. I heard a man say that once, and I, I confess I struggled with it. Is that really true? That not just the blessings, but the trials, the things that make me dependent upon God, the things that make me turn to him and turn my family to trust him, is it really true that if I knew everything that God knew about what happens and its consequences for eternity, that what God has chosen for me, if I knew what he knows, I would choose it too. As hard as that may be to accept, it is the blessing of thanksgiving. 
He has hedged me about. I am hid in Christ. And because I am hid in Christ, he loves me. He loves you as much as he loves Jesus. You are hid in Christ. And when the apostle says what that means, did you catch it? Verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, I mean, that's the whole sermon in just one little phrase. Can, can you just kind of hold it? Christ is your life. That God has seen Christ in your place. He has treasured you as much as he does his own son and child. And now he says, your life is Christ. And that's not just present provision, that you are raised and seated and hidden in Christ. It's also future promise for which we can give thanks. The apostle continues, what does he say? When Christ who is your life, verse four, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now the Bible does not fully explain to us what that glorified presence will be when Christ appears, that we will be with him in glory. But the apostle John does tell us something about that. What does he say? What we shall be, he says, has not been fully revealed. But this we know. When Christ appears, we will be like him. We will be like him. That's the future promise of God to all who put their faith in Christ Jesus. Now, I, I can't fully tell you what that means. C.S. Lewis, in that amazing sermon called The Weight of Glory, tried to capture it by saying this. What this means, if when Christ appears, we shall be like him, what that means is the dullest, most uninteresting Christian you know. Now, don't look around to identify them, okay? The dullest, most uninteresting Christian you know, if you could see them now in the estate they shall be when Christ appears, you would be tempted to bow down and worship them. Now, if you want to make that come home, think of the person sitting next to you. Don't look at them. This will be embarrassing. Okay. If you could see them now in the estate they shall be, when Christ returns, you would be tempted to bow down and worship them. No more imperfection or pain or disease or sin or shame or sorrow. Glorified by the work of Jesus Christ so that we in that heavenly state will recognize what the Apostle Paul says when he says these, these afflictions as horrible as they may seem in the moment, these afflictions are not worth comparing with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And when we look back at the, the hardship and the difficulty and the trial, that as much as we hate it in the moment, no, it is forcing us away from the world and to a savior for eternity. We actually have cause to give thanks that these light and momentary afflictions are not worth comparing with the glory that shall be revealed in us. That there is cause for thanksgiving in the moment because it is pushing us, every trial, every difficulty is pushing us to our cause of greater thanksgiving, which is our eternal union with the Savior in the glory that he has designed for everyone, not by their goodness, 
but by his grace as we trust in what he provides. Christian, do you have any cause for thanksgiving? When the thanksgiving is ours, it begins to change us. As we begin to recognize these aspects of what God is promising to us are actually made to give us power and strength for the moment. What, what does understanding who we are and the provision of Christ do for us? It, it changes first our very affections, those things that are behind the coveting. It's right back there in the beginning, verse one. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Some of your Bibles, if you have an NIV translation, it says, set your hearts on things above. The Greek is actually talking about pursuing what your longings are. Put your longings into the things that God is talking about. And, and that, that gets the gist of it. Because if in fact we recognize I've been raised with Christ above the sin and the shame and the hardship of this world. I'm going through it now, but I'm already above it in what he has done. I'm seated at God's right hand. I'm hidden from the wrath to come. I have the promise of eternal glory. If, if that's what happens, it begins to change what I find dear and affectionate. I begin to thank God. It fills my heart. And that's important. Because what gives sin, covetousness, or any other sin, power in our lives is our love for the sin. We don't always like hearing that, but just think about it for a moment. If the sin did not attract you, it would have absolutely no power in your life. What gives sin its power is our love for it. Now, we're complicated beings, and sometimes we hate that we love certain things or people or attitudes or possessions. We, we hate that. We love it. And we want to be freed of that love. What will free you? The apostle says, change your affections. Be so aware of how much God has loved you that what is displacing the love of the world is a greater love that you're filling up your heart with love for Christ and that's driving out the love of the world. So firm is he in that mind that he sets it even stronger terms in the second verse. He has just said, seek the things that are above. That's about changing your affection. But then in verse two he says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. That Set your minds is, is, is as hard as the Apostle Paul can say it. He's saying, I'm just asking you to change your affections. I'm saying you should change your convictions. This, this is like cement your heart on this. Focus on this. Make this firm in your thoughts. Don't let anything sway you from this understanding, these things that are true above, that have rescued you from the unhappiness of coveting, of immorality, or whatever it is, You've been rescued from the, the sin and the shame, and you can actually be rescued from the, the sin itself as you focus on the things above. I, I think of the rescue that I once witnessed after Katrina. CNN reporter was just interviewing a man who had his house washed away, but he'd been rescued by a helicopter at the last moment. And as the interviewer kind of 
held the microphone, <laughs> what reporters do not like to see happen. The man grabbed the microphone and he just began to report like he was a reporter, right? And even though his own house had washed away, he began to kind of speak very matter-of-factly. Well, yeah, the water, you know, it came to the front porch and it was rising fast. And so, you know, we went in and, and then the water came into the living room. And so we went up the steps and the water kept coming up the steps. Finally, we, we had to go into the attic and then his voice caught. And we had to kick out the roof or we would have died. And I watched the arm of the reporter come into the screen and begin to comfort him. <laughs> or we would have died. What gripped him, the way the apostle is here talking about how our rescue should grip us is I was going to die. My family was going to die. And then we were rescued. And the Apostle Paul is saying to his people, to us, we were bound for complaint and unhappiness and sin and shame and hell. And we were rescued. This needs to grip you. Just set your mind on this. Fix your thoughts on the reality that, that all was lost, but you have been rescued for eternity. And, and all the worst things of life, the things that you're ashamed of and the things that you're assaulted by, God is gonna fix them and he's gonna make it right. And he did it by the sacrifice of his son. And when you put your faith in him, it's not your works, but his work that's gonna make you safe and secure forever. And you can have hope again and you can have joy again and you can have thanksgiving for real. And, and that reality, is what the apostle is pushing so hard because of what he knows can take away your thanksgiving. I mean, what, what, what can hurt it all? As the gnawing at your heart of the empty things of the world come again. And so he just is honest. He says in the fifth verse, put to death, therefore, what is earthly. And it, it's just the Greek for kill it. It's trying to kill your joy. It's trying to kill your happiness. It's trying to take you from a close relationship with the Lord. So put to death whatever is earthly in you. And then he's just honest. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and here it is, and covetousness, which is idolatry. He's, he's really just kind of tracking the the path of most sin in our hearts. It starts with a little impurity. If it's a sexual thing, then it's, you know, the joke, the entertainment. It moves to passion. We begin to long for it. And then evil desire. I gotta have it or I can't be, I gotta have it. Gotta have her, gotta have that thing. Gotta have that position, gotta have that all. I gotta have it or I can't be happy. Which is covetousness. Which is idolatry. What takes its place? He has made me his. Now and forever, he has sealed me in safety. And when I know that, that my identity is one who is raised with Christ, who is seated at God's right hand and is hidden with Christ in God, then I have cause for thanksgiving because the eternity that God is providing for his people is 
mine and it is yours. That is our now and forever identity. We are loved by our God as much as he loves Jesus. What difference does it make? Because you know when he says put to death, he's talking about it may be a fight, a fight against your own heart. What will give you strength? Some of you may remember that movie Cinderella Man where a washed up fighter, James Braddock, gets a chance to fight for a world championship. Uh, One little problem, um, a huge fighter named Max Baer, who's already killed two men in the ring. And James Braddock, in order to get the world championship, has to fight Max Baer. His handlers are frightened, he's frightened, everybody is. The night of the fight, They're preparing in the locker room, and the wife of James Braddock comes in. She's not supposed to come in, but she does. The handlers try to stop her, and she withers them with a look. You get out of my way. I'm going to talk to my husband. And when she gets to him, she reminds him who he is. She says this to her husband, preparing him for the fight. Now you listen to me, James Braddock. (laughs) You are the bulldog of Bergen. and the pride of New Jersey. You're everybody's hope and the kid's hero. And most of all, James Braddock, you are the champion of my heart. Now, I won't spoil the movie by telling you how it ends. It's a good ending. He remembers who he is. He was the champion of her heart. Jesus is the champion of your heart. But you know what's even better than that? You are his trophy of grace. And when you know that, when you know that, it fills you not only with thanksgiving, it fills you with the thanksgiving that drives out the coveting and the impurity and the longing and the complaining and the hurting because you say, he has made me his. And I, I am raised with Christ, seated at God's right hand, hidden in him. And the reality of that is mine now and forever. When he appears in glory, I'm gonna be with him. And you too, Christian, do you have any cause for thanksgiving? Praise God and give him thanks. He has made us his. This thanksgiving, just remember who you are. And God will give you great blessing now and forever. Father, bless your people, we pray by reminding us of the goodness of the grace that you have given. Not by what we have done, but what our champion has done. He has made us yours. And because of that, our hearts are full. You have hedged us about. Nothing that is best for our eternity is being denied to us. Would you so convince us of that, that our thanksgiving is full and rich and blessed. This we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. 
Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.